0: You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 209, Edson Barton of U-Science. That teaser was from a piece called Loving Hank by the Debbie Porius Trio. Debbie is a jazz pianist, composer, teacher, and vocalist. If you're a jazz lover, I think you'll really enjoy it. Don't forget to stay tuned to the end of my podcast to hear the full piece. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I'm very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. In this episode, I interview Edson Barton, who's the CEO and founder of U Science. That's Y O U Science, not to be confused with University of the Sciences or U Science. Uscience is my former employer. Science, quote, helps students build confidence and connects their education to best fit careers in every single stage of their journey, end quote. We discuss Edson's background, how they make education meaningful, improving standards in schools and for corporate certifications. Most employers say that colleges are not preparing students for the workforce. We discuss alignment of teaching with a student's career path, it helps to create engagement, retention, and improves the outcome. Their activities help to reverse the increased dropout rate during the pandemic. Students discover their aptitude using brain games. They learn the science of themselves, hence you science. By partnering with industry, employers can discover and recruit students who match their needs. So without further ado, here's my interview with Edson Barton. Today I have Edson Barton, who's the CEO and founder of U Science. I'm happy to have him here today.
1: Hey, nice to be with you, Rod.
0: It's good to meet you. And um, you know, uh, not sure if you you checked into some of my uh, work, but uh, when I think of U Science, I think of U Is, which is the name of my former employer, um, University of the Sciences. So that uh, your name really caught my attention, <laughs> and. Um, now, U Sciences turns out was uh, merged with Saint Joseph University here in Philadelphia, so there's no longer a U Sciences. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, before we get um, deep into what your company does, uh, I'm always interested in finding out how entrepreneurs get started. And uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you started uh, U Science?
1: Well, like so many of us, and uh, and actually this is part of the problem maybe, and it's not always a problem. Sometimes it's really beneficial that we're trying to solve at you science But uh, my father was an entrepreneur. He was actually a truck driver by trade, but an entrepreneur by heart. And so uh, I grew up in that environment. And like so many of us, we take on the traits of our parents, uh, the good and the bad sometimes, and uh, we follow in their footsteps. And so learning how to Develop things, and and I think really it's a mindset of realizing that you can accomplish something, but also if you fell, which is what we saw a lot in our household. Not that my father did things wrong, but uh, just because of some of his lack of education here or there, without connections, he wasn't. His businesses never were successful, so he always went back to truck driving. Uh, which taught us a lot about hard work, paying off debts, being uh, faithful in your obligations and doing other things. But what it did for me is it it set me up to be able to look at the world a little bit differently and say, I'm really here for something bigger. I'm here to make a difference in, in lives. And what could that be? And that mentality actually is, is also the reason behind what we do. I was not a very good student, not because, again, because I wasn't smart, because of, of uh, other achievements, it was because I was, I was bored uh, with school. Uh, I didn't like the process, I, the system of it. Um, it felt like rewards were fairly arbitrary, right? And so I largely checked out, uh, in particular, in my high school years. Um, I ended up working uh, like like a lot of students do, but I ended up working full-time. So I worked full-time my senior year and managed a restaurant, actually, a couple of restaurants. And, um, you know, for a long time, I questioned whether or not I had value in the larger education society and and I always worried about that because I loved to learn. I and I really felt a kinship to learning, but the school system itself I didn't I didn't enjoy. And And what I came to realize was that I wasn't alone in this. For a long time, I thought that I was the outcast on that and come to find out that it's actually the vast majority of people who feel just like I do. And it's the very few people that, because of their aptitudes, because of other things, they fit nicely within the education system. And thank goodness for that, right, because we have a lot of positive things happen out of that. But for a lot of us, it's a struggle. And so I really decided early on that I wanted to be a part of the solution to help the masses of people who have wonderful talents, which I believe everyone has wonderful talents, to find the best use of those talents and make education meaningful for them personally. And so that's really the genesis of, of you Science and and previous companies before that was looking for a better way to engage individuals not just in the high school but it's also a huge problem in our post-secondary world in fact i think it's the biggest problem in post-secondary is students not knowing why they're there and so it causes all sorts of of problems that are not related to them as individuals it has to do with the system and the way we've set it up
0: uh you said a mouthful i i totally understand well that's that's interesting uh i i know exactly what you're talking about um i know my own daughter had a bit of a trouble transitioning from high school to college and uh you know oftentimes students don't know what they're really planning to do and and you know you try to institutions try to um put you in a cubbyhole, hole you have to pick a subject and uh oftentimes you know students keep changing in fact i don't know what the percentage is like 50 percent, i think Students change universities, switch, and that's what my daughter did. She she left her first choice uh, university, NYU, and went to a state school, which uh, helped our finances for sure. But uh, you know, it wasn't what she thought she was going to do. Now, in starting your company, how how did that come about?
1: Well, I I ended up uh, through a roundabout way, actually, in the education field. So that's not where I started to go after I graduated from college. But just a, a really unique turn of events, and I don't have time to go into it today, but it is interesting little story. But I ended up in education as the executive director for an organization called Kids Voting. And that was the Utah chapter of a national organization that provided um, a curriculum for civics education and, of course, to encourage young people to vote. Their, their goal was to increase the number of students of young people voting as they turned 18. And what that really did for me is it, it keyed me into focusing in on a couple of of issues that we had within education. And at the time, one of the biggest ones was standards. Uh, Educators across the country, this is of course years and years ago, standards were around, but they weren't utilized the way that we talk about them and use them today. And so you could very literally, and this still happens today, but you could go from high school to high school to high school or, or middle school to middle school or elementary school, and based on where you were learning, you were learning vastly different things. And the standards movement was really a a movement to try to say, hey, look, we owe an equal opportunity of education to all students, which, of course, we've had for a very long time. But this was another step to say it's not enough to just be an English teacher or a math teacher. You have to teach these things. And we need all students to learn these things. Well, with kids voting, one of the neat things that happened there is uh, we were trying to get this free product into school systems. And we didn't get very much success at first. And so as I was interviewing teachers, what they would tell me is, look, if you could tell me where I should insert this curriculum that you have, then I'll teach it. I think it's good, but I just don't know how it fits and I don't have the time to figure it out. So I took it upon myself very personally to look at every civics education standard. And again, that very loose term at the time, but looking at all of those from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, and I figured out where to insert uh, our curriculum into what they were teaching and to their standards. And within one year, the, the year prior, we had 3,000 participants in the state of Utah go through a mock election, and where they were actually voting on real candidates and things, but it was done at the school level. The very next year, after doing all of that work, it jumped to 30,000 students. And after that, it jumped up to 60,000 students. So huge, huge increases. And what it taught me was the power of investing time at the base root of education. Where do teachers, what do students need to learn and understand? And if we can embed the correct principles there, then we can make huge changes in education uh, throughout the, the com- education community. And so, based on that work, I was recruited t- uh, to a company called, uh, which is now called Certiport, which uh, is a Pearson company at this point. Um, but at that time, it was a small organization. We had a contract with Microsoft to deliver certifications for them throughout the world. And we actually found the same problem Microsoft was having an issue with very low uh, passing rates of their certifications. And after studying it uh, for just a little bit and having had that prior experience, I identified one of the big problems. Their standards were wrong. And and so we worked with Microsoft to improve upon their standards and, and get those standards out to publishing houses throughout the world. And within a two-year period of time, we shifted the pass rate from 30% on average up to around the industry standard of certifications around 70%. So huge increases worldwide. And, and satisfaction with the certification and with the process went dramatically up, of course. And so what I learned from that is really taking these principles and saying, there's better ways to engage students now. How do we take these principles that we're learning and and turn it so that we can engage students on a deeper basis? So that's, that's how this all started. And I ended up uh, starting my own company, which uh, was ProCert Labs, which is a standards validation and uh, creation company. we worked with state governments and education communities and certification programs worldwide. And then that led into, as I was kind of moving away a little bit from some of my goals as how do I help students engage better? I started thinking more and more about the work that I had done in certifications. And there were some interesting studies at the time that proved that if a student had a certification at the end of their coursework, and this was true on both high school and college levels, that the students performed better in their classes and by a pretty significant margin. And not only that, the educator had higher job satisfaction and the students reported more satisfaction with their coursework. And so that set me off on a path of thinking, what was it about certifications that caused these types of benefits in individuals? And the end result of all of my personal research over the years came down to, if you can connect an individual to their future career state in a more succinct way in the classroom, that triggers all sorts of of benefits for the students. And and really it's just psychology 101, right? If you have your why embedded into what you're doing, if you know why you're there, you perform better. And that was really the genesis of then starting uh, the companies that uh, was turned into YouScience.
0: Interesting. Now, when I think of uh, a minute ago, you talked about Microsoft and certifications. When, when I think of certifications uh, that I've seen, they're very dry, and the 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 way that they're delivered uh, is page turner, oftentimes a lot of memorization. But you said it was improved by changing their uh, their standards. I think so. Can you give me an example? What what would that uh, be like in, in the case of, well, school would be better if you can give an example uh, in terms of the secondary or post secondary.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'll use an example from this experience with Microsoft, but uh, it can be applied to any educator in any area. So, this is if you want to improve the education of your classroom or of your school, of your district, or of your state, spend time on your standards. It will pay off. And the one uh, thought here is that you need to give enough detail around what the standard means, so that everybody after that, whether that's a teacher, a student, um, uh, textbook uh, creators, or or curriculum creators, can understand what they're trying to train on. And if that is left in question, then it breaks down all of the the after uh, all of the uh, the consequences of of your education or the effects of your education. So as an example, early on uh, the original standards that Microsoft published, for example, said this was for a certification of Microsoft Word. So to become certified on that end user product. And it said something like this, format text. So two word standard right there, format text. The challenge there, Rod, is how many ways are there to format text? Well, there's thousands of different ways to format text. And so what would happen is here's the base level. I call it the the foundation level. Standards are the foundation. And if you just say format text, well, if I'm a curriculum provider who's creating materials around formatting text, of course, you're picking an author who's writing that curriculum, and so they're going to they're gonna focus on the ways to format text that makes sense to them. Another publisher is going to do it in ways that make sense to them, and another one is going to do it in ways that make sense to them, and pretty soon you have 40, 50, 60 different ways of quote-unquote formatting text. Well, that's not so bad, except that each one of those is distinct, and every learner that's learning from those different texts or curriculums are learning a different way to do it. So now as it bubbles up to eventually an assessment of some kind, whether that's an in-class quiz, whether it's a state proficiency test, or whether it's a certification, the question may be around a topic that the student had no idea was even there. And therefore, it's unfair to the student to ask a question about formatting text in a way that they were never prepared for. And so that's a, a simple example of, of being able to do that. And we see it all across campuses uh, in college all the time. Um, I remember right going into my program, which I, I graduated in communications marketing, but because of the, the professors that I selected to teach me compared to some of my peers who went through the same program, we could have graduated from different countries our education result was so different and that's a real problem so now when you tr- uh, move that through the system and now you're a you're a job seeker and you're an employer and the employer needs to hire somebody in marketing communications and and they sit down with me and they say okay well tell me about yourself and i'm here for my first job and i say well i graduated in marketing communications And the employer right there says, I don't even care because I just interviewed somebody else that had the same degree, and they didn't even know anything that I thought was important about marketing communications. And when you look at the the data from employers, employers will be asked, do you feel like college or high school is preparing our students for the workplace? and the vast majority i mean there's all sorts of studies on this all the time and the and the of course the data points range but upwards of 90% of employers say no i don't believe that colleges and high schools are preparing students for the workforce properly that's shocking But when you really peel back the the layers there and find out why, it's because they don't know how, it's not that schools aren't preparing students. I am a believer that our school systems, in particular in the United States, are some of the very, very best in the entire world. I've been all over the world and studied different education systems and ours are fantastic. But what we do a very terrible job of is helping the world understand what we've learned. And that goes back down to the standards. If if every student is learning something different, then the outcome of that is, well, nobody knows what anybody learned
0: at that point. Right, right. You know, it's a <clears throat> little reminiscent to me of, uh, I've I, uh, been in academia for my entire career, really. And uh, for a number of years, I was at a medical school in Philadelphia. And, uh, and I remember how the curriculum changed. Uh, in fact, I also... Um, Helped to edit a, a series of, of of books and originally in fact when, when i did the editing they had a different book for you know pharmacology biochemistry physiology anatomy and by the time it actually came back came out they scrambled it all and they talked about the systems the heart so they talked about the heart and they brought in the pharmacology the physiology the anatomy and and it was a much better way to learn because uh, you knew what you why you were learning something. It wasn't you were just you know picking something out in isolation. And I think, well, why do I need to know that? But when you put it all together, it's you know it sort of reminds me of of, of that. And hopefully, uh, it's, we still see some of uh, you know. In, in my last experience in, in academics, I, not not everybody does that, and uh, so it's still troublesome. I can certainly see how that would affect certainly. Uh, you know How to interpret, like you said, how to interpret somebody's performance in a given course, you don't know really what, what they learned.
1: Well, and if you have a professor, of course, that has deep knowledge, but they've also over the years developed their favorite subject, right? They, they find their favorites. And so when they get into the classroom, if there's not a structured standard set, then that professor is going to focus on what they want to teach, not necessarily what industry wants them. To teach, and so by the time that the students are coming out of of school, they've they've just it's a menagerie of, of different learning, right? And and employers then and the students are suffering because of that.
0: Exactly, you know, um, in thinking about uh, what, what I've experienced uh, over the years, uh, you know, high school teachers have to be certified as a teacher. Of course, in colleges and universities, they, they don't. And like you said, you know, I sat in many lectures when I was going through college. Uh, and you would hear about uh, this clinicians uh, pet uh, research, and it probably had nothing to do with what he was supposed to be teaching and let alone, uh, you know, remembering all of that. Um, so that also brings up my, my mind, the the differences that uh, happened when we moved to doing a lot more online because uh, we still did a lot of lecturing uh, face-to-face. And then my last couple of years, uh, I helped to bring about a, a brand new online division, and it was totally asynchronous. And the content experts were people in the field doing that work. You know, I'm talking about, uh, in this case, it was, you know, healthcare informatics and uh, genomics and so forth. So. These were professionals that uh, helped us develop these very, uh, and they're difficult, uh, very comprehensive, totally asynchronous online courses. And they turn out totally different than maybe the way that topic was taught face-to-face. And I think even though some people may maybe can't get into uh, teach, you know, learning online uh, because they have to be self-motivated, uh, I think they actually, the content and the way it was arranged was probably much more rigorous.
1: Yeah, well I think you hit on the key right there which is the the nature of doing something with a more hands-on approach, right? And and more interactive. Almost it's almost universally known now that those types of methodologies for teaching are produce better results in, in across the large population of of people. And it's one of the reasons why we're actually doing what we're doing at Youth Science, which is to guide individuals towards learning programs that uh, are career oriented in nature. And the reason the for the focus there is because once we switch the the mindset of the student towards you're doing this task, whatever it may be, whether it's math or learning uh, a language or whether it's learning science, but now you're doing it with the bent of how will that affect my future career and my life going forward? All of a sudden, their their whole view of education changes. And the closer that we can get the education process to align up with an individual's career path, the the better the outcomes become. And uh, you can see that all across the board. I think, you know, one of the tragedies and one of the, you know, I think the dirty secret of edu- uh, post-secondary education of colleges is the dropout rate in colleges. Uh, pre-pandemic, the, the dropout rate was 42% across all post-secondary education levels. Um, we know that that has gone dramatically down. So the belief is that we're actually over 50% dropout rate right now, but there haven't been the good studies that have come out to show that. But when you really dive in and ask individuals, why are you dropping out? The answer comes back resoundingly clear. I didn't know why I was there. And that hands-on learning that you were talking about becomes a big factor there. So if you think about students who are coming from high school, have just finished four years of, of general education with a little bit of extra curriculum thrown in there. And now you take them and you throw them into a post-secondary experience where they're now paying for it themselves. And the first thing that we do in most colleges is to say, take these general education courses again. And the student is sitting back there saying, well, I don't even know why I'm really here. They told me to pick a major, and so I just picked one, right? And it might be based on their interest or some other way, but that's where we see huge numbers of students picking general uh, majors like general psychology, general business, general English, general, right? Some of these majors. One of the fastest growing majors in the United States is general studies. That's a travesty. That we're getting students to pay tens of thousands of dollars to earn a degree that doesn't prepare them for anything. And, and students, going back to the point, the students feel that. They know that. And so they're questioning, why am I here to begin with? And the closer that we can tie those things to that, that experiential learning process early on, the better we're going to get results and and it's been proven that their completion rates in college go dramatically up
0: interesting you know what do you say though to uh you know some of the uh, inhabitants of the ivory tower that say but what about liberal arts education why can't why isn't that still valued and and why can't you have a general education and still fit into you know th- into society and 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 take a job. Don't you need to have a wi- wi- you know very rounded education?
1: So there's there's two factors there. One, first of all, I'm a huge fan of liberal education. Um, but when we look back at uh, societies, in particular, when we look at the what we've termed the greatest generation, right—that generation that really lived from the First World War to the Second World War and then beyond. That was a generation that learned how to do things with their hands. They weren't limited in their scope, so they had more opportunity, which I think is very important. And you can look at any society, we have to provide opportunity for individuals. But they really jumped into education for purposes. They they were going there to improve their lives to get a better job. Over the years, we transformed liberal education from helping us move to get better jobs, which liberal education really did back then, right? So if you could become a better thinker, you could then study medicine, you could study law, you could study other things. So you moved into a higher paying class of jobs. Um, Right now, however, and and by the way, I would say that each of those jobs, one of the falsehoods of this narrative of liberal education is almost the academic education and career-oriented education. Those two lines really shouldn't be there because if I'm a professor, which is a very academic oriented job, the first thing that I need to learn how to do is learn how to research. Right. Well, that's that is not an academic pursuit. That is actually a skill set that you learn how to do. Um, you have to be taught how to do that you learn that so it's career oriented you have to learn how to teach you have to learn how to interface with individuals you have to learn how to write papers those are all career oriented tasks they're not specifically academic um, and in fact one of one of the things that i love most if you want to be a doctor you have to spend years in a residency program and other things that is an apprenticeship if you will right that's nothing more than an apprenticeship we just call it by another name, because it's a, a doctor in that way, if, a medical doctor. So the, the the concept of the liberal education should be woven through everything that we do. But over the years, we have stripped out the career orientation of that. And what that did is it stripped out the reason why I was learning to begin with as an individual. So for every one of us we we shouldn't think of learners as just this blob of goo sitting there and just they just want information. Every single one of us that are living we have to have a reason for doing something. And the stronger that we can make that reason then the greater uh our our ability to focus on accomplishing that thing. We see it all the time in in K-12 education. You have a student that's floundering, but but if you're able to help that student find a passion and, and their aptitude for the work that they were meant to be doing, then all of a sudden they start to flourish. And they start to, they'll they'll almost walk through walls to learn whatever they need to do. You know, we use the example all the time in in, uh, the construction industry, where you'll find an individual that didn't fit in into, you know, the school system. So they find their way to construction, which is the wrong way to do it, by the way. But this is the stereotypical kind of scenario. They find their way into construction, and they were never good at math, quote unquote, not good at math. And all of a sudden, they get into a construction arena where they're actually thriving because they're using their hands they're using different parts of their brain they were meant to do this type of academic activity and all of a sudden they're doing complex math and geometry in ways that they never would have done in in their school system and we look at that and say wow that was so surprising well it's not surprising at all it has to do with how are your aptitudes aligning to the skills that you're learning and if you apply those appropriately then we flourish and everyone has that opportunity to flourish.
0: So, uh, we haven't talked much about the science angle. You're you're entitled to uh, use science. So, is that because you focus on the sci- scientific disciplines? Um, that's one part of the question. I guess the other is um, walk me through uh, what an engagement looks like with with, especially in in higher ed. How how does it work, and what what do you What do you do? Can you sort of outline that for me?
1: Yeah, you bet. Uh, Probably a good way to look at it from our namesake is it's the science of you. So not from the uh, kind of the medical field or the health field, but from the psychological field to some degree. And so what we're really trying to do is we have a set of programs that help walk an individual through discovering really who they are. And the base of that is an aptitude assessment. And an aptitude assessment, I'll take a little bit of time there, the aptitude assessment is quite different than an interest survey or a personality survey that most of us have been exposed to uh, uh, quite a bit throughout our careers. And unfortunately we're giving these interest surveys or personality surveys to students and guiding them towards careers. Well there's a real problem with that As an individual, uh, we are really terrible at understanding what we actually like and dislike. Uh, We're not very good at that. And the reason why is because we project mentally what we think we want and what we think other people want. And I say it that way because sometimes it's really not what we want, right? So if I'm in a relationship with my spouse and I know that she likes a certain type of food and she asks, you know, what? what do you like or what's your favorite type of food, I have a tendency, depending on the situation that I'm in, to respond differently to that question in different circumstances. So now think of a young person, and this is true in college as well as in high school. You're coming into college and you're asked to pick a major. And the advice that we give a young person at that stage is, well, pick something you're interested in. Well, the problem with that is that you can't have an interest in something that you've never been exposed to before. So what most students pick are general psychology, because I've been exposed, I'm interested in my own self, uh, general health care, so nursing, right, that type of line, uh, general English classes because of that, or uh, the arts. We have huge numbers of students joining the arts. Well, part of the problem there is that's not what the economy needs. The economy doesn't need all of those people. We need some of those people, but we don't need everybody going there. So when a student is asked that or an individual is asked that, what do you think you want to do? We're pretty poor judges of that. So, and, and an interest survey, by the way, or a personality survey, they'll they'll ask questions like this. And they're very valid surveys. They're just not valid. It's like a tool. You don't use a hammer to drill in a screw, right? You, you use different tools to be able to do that. You use a screwdriver to drill in a screw. Um, so, these different tools are set up for different things. And an interest survey will ask questions like, do you like building uh, cabinets? Or do you like... Uh, Computing on software. Well, now let's think about just that one example. And there's, you know, we'll ask all sorts of these types of questions. Well, if I'm a student and I've never been exposed to building cabinets before, how am I supposed to respond to that? I have no idea. Likewise, if I've never done computer uh, computations, I I don't know. Or if I've had really terrible instructors in math, and I can com- and I think of that as math, right? Uh, I may have a negative adverse reaction to it just because of that. Aptitude testing is quite different because we're actually asking you not to judge yourself. We're actually giving you a performance test. You have to perform different activities, and we do it over over computer now, but you have to perform these activities, and based on the, the, the studies and the research there, we're able to indicate what your aptitudes are. So as an example, uh, numerical reasoning is an aptitude, accountancy, or math is a skill. Skills can be learned. The aptitude is what's inside me. And what's interesting is aptitudes actually are quite stable from birth. You're born with them, kind of like your dominant and non-dominant hand. And they solidify as, a, as an individual goes through puberty. And they actually don't change very much as we grow through adulthood. We become better at the skills laid on those aptitudes but the aptitudes don't change very much. And so they're, they're remarkably stable. And so as by doing that, we can ask an individual to perform these exercise, we call them brain games. And as an individual performs these brain games, we're now better able to understand who that person is and guide them into potential professions that they may never have thought about before. So if I come from a rural community, and of course, I'm being quite stereotypical here, but if I come from a rural community and all of my neighbors are agrarians, right? They, they're in, they're in farms or they're in the BLM for Bureau of Land Management type jobs or other things, I may never have been exposed to a parent, an uncle, an aunt, a neighbor who was actually a computer engineer or a surgeon or a a welder for a high-tech aerospace engineer uh, type firm. So my ability to visualize myself in any type of career or post-secondary major becomes quite limited. And so I choose what I know. Whereas by the aptitude, I can open a student's eyes up and say, hey, guess what, Edson? Did you know that you're actually very talented in numerical reasoning? That skill is incredibly important for uh, computer engineering. You would make a great computer engineer. Now we can tell an individual that no matter where they came from, that's that's incredibly powerful. And the results of that are that students don't change majors as often as we talked about at the beginning. And they actually complete their programs in much higher percentages than their peers because of that.
0: Uh, now I understand. I understand what what you're doing and it's, it's fascinating. It's a really great way to look at it. But have an aptitude test been around for a while of, In high school, aren't you given aptitude tests or are your tests totally different and, and that's in some other way?
1: Yeah, so aptitudes have been around for a long time. There's been a lot of studies, a lot of research, and, and great work done on aptitude testing. However, historically, aptitude testing was quite problematic because it's been very personal. It had to be done in person. Uh, the military has been doing aptitude testing for a long time. It's called the ASVAB, and many of us actually performed the ASVAB. But what happened in those scenarios is that it wasn't produced for the masses. It wasn't done in a way that that the majority of people could actually participate in. And, and most individuals, Rod, did not take an aptitude test just because they're so difficult to administer and, and, and more time consuming. So most people have gone through personality tests or interest Tests, right? and they're really not tests; they're surveys in that regard. And again, they have their place; they're not wrong. We actually utilize both and use a proprietary algorithm to combine aptitudes and interests to really help an individual see what's possible for them. Because you don't want to take out that personal flavor for for your guidance as well. Um, but that's really the key: is that what we've been able to do is we've been able to focus on and do it in a reliable and valid way to reproduce aptitude uh, assessments in an online format that we can distribute to the masses and do it in a shorter, more succinct way and with very high reliability across the board. And so that's what we've really been able to do is is really make it for mass distribution.
0: Got it. Got it. Very interesting. So getting down to the nuts and bolts of, of how um your business works. Um, do you is it always a matter of making um having a contract with, with the school system or uh the university or does it sometimes go down to working with a given department or, or a given faculty person? How 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 do you operate?
1: Yeah, it can actually operate on a lot of those different levels. So an individual can go in with some of our products, they can purchase those right off our website for retail prices, and, and that's just fine. Uh, the more traditional way that we work is actually through education institutions. That's our the preferred method because we're actually trying to look at a student and say, you know, just taking an aptitude test, for example, isn't the end of the process that's actually the beginning of the process so the next step is okay once you are in or once you've completed these aptitude tests and you've discovered your your aptitudes then we combine those to a career and we give a whole bunch of different options to the individual well then you have to look at that and say well that's kind of the standard if you will So what do we teach you on top of that? How do you go next? And so that's where we recommend to individuals and we help the the faculty in the school to help place the students in the proper education pathways. And by doing that, then we know that they'll progress at a faster, better rate. On top of that, we offer certification programs. So, as the students progress, we actually want them to validate their skills. This is actually a critical step, um, and we can do it in a lot of different ways. And if that skip is stepped, it doesn't. It's not the end of the process. But what that does is it reinforces for the students that they are doing something of worth they're doing something valuable and they can actually attach that to their resumes as they go out and look for jobs the next piece of that is actually connecting the student to actual employers and so within our system we have designed a method so that employers can come right into the system and they can then uh, show themselves to the students based on the aptitudes and the careers that they were guided towards and along that process we're developing ways for the employers to actually message the students in a very uh, private way so it's uh, all, all kept within the bounds of privacy agreements and things like that for uh, appropriately but what it does is it allows uh, say you're boeing for example and and you need to find more electrical engineers. Well, by able to identify students as they're going through their their education process, we can help Boeing, and and again, in a very positive, powerful way, tell the student, hey, Rod, you happen to have these aptitudes here. Did you know that Boeing actually wants people just like you? Just that one message right there changes an individual. Right, And it doesn't mean that they'll end up in a job with Boeing or anybody else, but what it does is it tells the individual, you're doing great things and there's an end result for you. And we can actually then, we're working on right now the process of connecting the individual students to those corporations uh, through work-based learning activities and, and working on recruitment as well, so they can actually move into those jobs right as they graduate. It's incredibly powerful.
0: That's great. That really makes a lot of sense. You know, with a pandemic, um, I'm wondering how that has impacted your business. Um, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's actually uh, been, uh, I wouldn't say great for the business, but in the ways that individuals have been looking at their lives in a different way. So uh, as the pandemic progressed, we saw the Great Resignation happen, which was a very odd thing for economists to look at. Right here's this worldwide pandemic that's shaking up every industry, making jobs more questionable, and yet we're seeing people quit from their jobs. Right, and as you looked at the the studies and the research that's been done there, it actually translated to the exact same problem: individuals in jobs not knowing why they were there, feeling like they didn't belong in that, in that area. You know, the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve of New York has done a longitudinal study over, over a long period of time, and they found that less than 27% of college graduates will ever work in a field related to their major. Will ever work in a field related to their major and when you actually do the math based on high school dropouts, students who never will go to post secondary education and follow that through that's actually less than 7% of the total population where the education process and system worked in the way that it was supposed to work for those individuals. And that's a real sad statement. And, and it just goes back again. It's not that we're teaching the wrong things. It's not that our education system is wrong or bad, but what we haven't done is we haven't focused on the individual enough. We haven't said, what is it that will be right for Rod? Now let's get Rod into the programs that where he will flourish in our education system. And as we're better able to do that, then it, it really opens things up. So to answer your question back to how has the pandemic affected things, it's actually opened people's eyes in a much more dramatic way to seeing that if I can focus my life in a better direction that was more intentional and empowering to me, I'll actually have a better outcome. And, and the same thing, industries or businesses are actually on the reverse side of that. And they're saying, we need people who want to be in our jobs, right? There are people who want to be and love to be in construction. There are people who want to be and love to be in the restaurant businesses. There are people who want to be and love to be in the academic uh, higher education uh, professions. There are people who want to be and need to be teaching school, at a high school, junior, higher, elementary level. Well, let's find those people and put them in the right places. And so it's incredibly empowering. We get a lot of requests from businesses and we're looking at better ways to work with them. Large employers that are saying, we have such a high churn rate in our business, but, uh, but we have the jobs that people want. We actually have wonderful jobs but the people don't recognize that they're actually well-suited for another job within these businesses. And so we have businesses reach out to us all the time, wanting to help us solve that problem with them.
0: You got it. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, um, not too long ago, I went to my high school reunion. I won't tell you how many years, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, we went to see my old high school and, um, you know, when I went through school, we had I had wood shop, I had metal shop, had a lot of music, a lot of art, and I know a lot of school systems have just cut that out. I guess the budgetary issues. So, do your aptitude tests? Do they still, um, you know, how do they identify students that may have? may want to be a, or, or be be suited to be a plumber, electrician, uh, a carpenter, an artist, even though the students have never been, you know, experienced a lot of these uh, yeah. aptitudes.
1: Yeah, so we definitely identify those individuals and recommend jobs that that fill their cup, so to speak, uh, that fill their aptitude needs. And it doesn't matter who they are. They, they have wonderful opportunities. And now they can see that if I get into that, I'll really progress. Um, the exposure that we're, you mentioned taking away sometimes in our school systems. And while funding is certainly a part of it, so I don't want to minimize that part of it, but what a lot of it is, is the wrong focus. Um, I, I won't mention which high, uh, which district this was in the United States, but we were approached by a district that said, "You know, we um, we have a large minority population, very diverse population, so from lots of cultures." And this was in a place, by the way, that you wouldn't naturally expect that in a state. Um, uh, so, not a New York City or a Chicago. This was in more of a middle, you know, middle USA, and. The and their p- pass rates for math were dismal. They were very, very low, the lowest in the state. And their board was considering uh, to improve that, adding an, another required year of math. Well, now think about this. We have math stu- we have students who are already required to take three required years of math. And now you're telling failing math students that they need to take another year of math. Mm-hmm. And what we know in that regard, and this, again, is is applicable to higher education as it is to secondary education, that if a student, if we can find a, if we can help a student get into three uh, classes of career-oriented classes, we call that a concentrator status under federal laws, but if we can help a student get into three career-oriented classes Across the United States, graduation rates in high school jump 15 percentage points across all students. For students, uh, for African American students, it jumps about 20 percentage points. For uh, Native Americans, it jumps almost 25 percentage points, graduation rates. One of my favorite data points in that set is if you're in English as a second language learner, so you don't even understand the language fully in the school system, it jumps almost 30 percentage points for those students. So if we're wanting to change the economies of our communities, if we're wanting to change families' lives, if we're really wanting to change who we are as Americans, this is a great way to do that. It helps individuals and it helps people find their way better, faster into what they actually want to do. And it solves so many of these other problems that we're seeing in the school systems.
0: Well, wow, that in fact uh, that sounds like a great way to sum up our conversation. I really, I really like that. Uh, in fact, I think we are pretty much out of out of our time. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. I uh, I'm sorry I didn't get from the beginning that it's uh, the science of you, but uh, now I totally understand uh, what it's all about. So, it's uh, so I really want to thank you again for uh, talking with me today. And uh, sounds like you've got a, a, a great product and. Uh, all of our institutions uh, can benefit from it.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate the time and and look forward to listening and, and being a part of your shows in the future as well.
0: That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And now enjoy the song, Loving Hank, by the Debbie Perez Trio. Until next time, have a great week. That's it for today's
1: episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company.